Well, good morning and welcome to uh, Redemption Church, everyone. Um, my name is Reggie, and uh, in just a few minutes, we're going to start looking at Jonah chapter 3. Uh, over the last couple of weeks here at Redemption Church and for uh, the next few months, uh, we will be moving through some different minor prophets um, in the Old Testament. And so uh, this week we're on Jonah chapter 3, next week we'll finish Jonah up. Jonah is unique in that most of, um, when you think of a, a prophet or a prophecy book from the Old Testament or what we deem uh, a prophecy book from the Old Testament, we think about God's Word being proclaimed to a group of people, like a specific message that God has given to someone, a prophet, to proclaim to a nation, a group of people, uh, lots of people, a king, uh, different things like that. Jonah's unique in that in the 48 verses that we find through the four chapters of Jonah, there's only one uh, verse where something is being proclaimed to a group of people. Most of Jonah um, is a little different, and it's about the story, and it's about what God is doing. And so chapter 3 contains that one statement being made to a group of people, and it happens to be what Jonah uh, is proclaiming to the people of Nineveh. So if you want to... Uh, Turn to chapter 3 if you have your Bibles. Jonah chapter 3, I'll read it as well. But it's just a few verses, so I'll go ahead and read through those. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, Three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn away from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the book of Jonah, the story of Jonah, the promise of grace and mercy and forgiveness and compassion that we find in the book of Jonah. And Holy Father, this morning as we begin to, to work through this passage I pray that you would be at work in our hearts and minds, that we would hear your word. God, not, not my words, but your words. I understand fully that my words are of little importance, but God, yours are of utmost importance. And so God, like, like the people of Nineveh, I pray that this morning we would hear you. God, I pray that Jesus would be raised in this place, that he would be lifted high, that we would be drawn to you because of Christ and because of Christ alone. Holy Father, we ask all this in the name of your precious Son, our Savior, 
Jesus. Amen. Jonah 3 picks up after Jonah was uh, vomited out of the mouth of a fish. Last week, after I got done speaking up here, uh, Ben came and pulled me aside after the service and said, hey, I just want you to know, at some point in the sermon, last, or at some point in the sermon this morning, you, started, you, you stopped saying fish and started saying whale. Um, so the text says fish, and it was not intentional that I said whale. I'll give you a little background as to why that probably happened. Um, when I was in middle school, I was involved in this little bitty tiny church, country church, like in the sticks, right? And every year there's like eight or ten kids or youth who, um, who had to put on some kind of church play or some kind of church musical. And so when I was in middle school, um, I had to be in a play, and I say I had, I, I don't think I had a choice, because I would have not have done it if I wasn't made to. I had to be in a play called Jonah and the German Whale. Right, what? Thank you. That's my reaction exactly. And so I think it's pretty odd. I don't remember much about the play, except that the whale was more like a submarine. And uh, this is true. I'm not making this up. There were like German sailors in the back of the whale and German sailors in the front of the whale telling the whale what to do and where to go. And uh, I have no idea what the play was about. It was, right, the more I talk about it, the weirder it seems. Um, but anyway, that has caused me, I think, to say whale more, way more than I ever intended. Um, so that wasn't like a statement of fact or anything last week when I said that. It's, it's because I was severely damaged as a middle schooler. So anyway, um, immediately prior to this chapter, Jonah has spent some time in the belly of a fish, praying, coming to understand something about God. Jonah chapter 2 ends with Jonah proclaiming that salvation belongs to the Lord alone. And that those who worship anybody other than the covenant God, known as Yahweh, when they worship anything else other than the covenant God of Israel, they are forsaking grace and mercy that could be theirs. And so chapter 3 picks up with Jonah coming out of the fish, and the language where God tells Jonah to go again to Nineveh is very similar to the language that's used at the beginning of chapter 1. There's a little difference in that this time, God says, when you get there, you're only going to say what I tell you to say. And so Jonah goes. Jonah gets up and he goes to Nineveh. Now, when Jonah left Israel, when the word of the Lord came to him to initially go to Nineveh, he went and he got on a boat and he started heading somewhere called Tarshish. And uh, Eric Odom, my friend back there, tweeted a couple of weeks ago that any time a pastor says Tarshish, it sounds like he's inebriated. I'm not. It's a difficult word to say. But Jonah is heading in that way. And if he's heading in that direction, that means he's going away from Israel and Nineveh. Nineveh would have been in modern-day Iraq or somewhere in that area, like 500, 600 miles in the other direction of Israel, maybe even more. And so Jonah's going across the Mediterranean, more than likely. And so wherever he gets spit up out of the mouth of the fish, he's still a very long way from Nineveh. So it shows something about Jonah's obedience and willingness to go to Nineveh the second time 
that he would eventually get there despite the fact there's probably still a lot of travel. It's not like the fish spit him out into Nineveh. It doesn't happen that way. Nineveh is not near the water. And, and, and so it shows, like I said, some obedience and willingness on Jonah's part that he ends up back in Nineveh, or that he ends up in Nineveh. When he gets there, he preaches this, what is uh, uh, essentially like a modern gospel grace-filled sermon, right? No. He says five Hebrew words, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. That's all that's recorded. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. He, he may have said more. He may not have. This is all that the text gives us. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. It's not your typical evangelistic sermon. The text says, though, that the people of Nineveh believed God and that they fasted and that they mourned and that they put on sackcloth. And the king issues a decree that everyone, including their animals, are going to fast and mourn as well. King directs people to turn from their evil ways, to turn from their violence towards one another, because if they do, God just might relent and not bring destruction on Nineveh. And chapter 3 closes with this. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This idea from chapter 2 that salvation belongs to the Lord This idea from chapter 2 that Jonah puts out there while he's in the belly of the fish now takes center stage, right? Our our attention in chapter 3 shifts away from Jonah a little bit, and our attention is drawn exclusively, I think, to God and what he's doing in Nineveh. I mean, right from the get-go, if we just look at the overall story of Jonah, God has worked in Jonah's life. By extending to him grace and mercy. And now the, the, the scene is set in Nineveh and God is extending grace and mercy to Nineveh and giving them an opportunity to repent even though the sermon that Jonah preaches doesn't necessarily sound like it. The, the action shows God extending grace and mercy to Nineveh, to the very people that Jonah had no desire to see receive any sort of grace and mercy. That's who God is is focusing on here, who the word goes to, that they might repent. And I think what we start to see from the overall story, and even here as the story moves from Jonah to Nineveh, I think we start to see that God is a God who is extremely concerned about reconciliation. A God who is extremely concerned that people be reconciled to him, that Jonah be reconciled to him, that the people of Nineveh be reconciled to God. I think what we see in the book of Jonah is a God who cares deeply that people be rightly related to him. So I think there are three main things we can build on from the fact that God is concerned about people being reconciled to him. Like first, we need to see that God is a God of second chances. Secondly, I think we need to see that God does not hesitate to offer compassion even within the context of rebuke and judgment. 
And thirdly, where we're going to end up is that God is inviting his creation to turn to him. And ultimately, that invitation is fulfilled and most seen in the person and work of Jesus. And and we'll get there. But first off, God is a God of second chances. When I was nine years old, I started attending... uh, a school here in town called Curtis Baptist School right up the road. And, uh, and my wife Amy and I uh, have been in school together since we were in the third grade, uh, a long time. Um, and so we were in school for several years, and we got to seventh grade, and uh, we were a, a private school, and there were no dances, right? So the one big event a year was the sports banquet. Um, and so when we were in the seventh grade, this one person uh, that we were friends with, um, asked me, this, this other girl that was in our class, asked me if I would go to the sports banquet with her, right, because I was a catch. Um, that's not true. But, um, so she asked me if I would go to the sports banquet with her, and I said, no, I, I don't want to go to the sports banquet with you. And so my precious wife, my sweet, precious wife, turned and looked at me after she found out about this and said, um, well, you might as well go to the sports banquet with her because nobody else will ever go out on a date with you. (laughs) To this date, my wife says that's the meanest thing she's ever said. I'm not real sure. But let's fast forward a few years, right? And so later on in high school, Amy and I started dating. Um, And then obviously we eventually got married. We've been married 21 years now. But here's what I've come to as I've reflected back on those events, right? So God gave Amy a second chance to get it right. <laughs> I'm not so sure that's true, but for the purpose of this sermon, that's what I'm going with. Right, I, I've already sort of addressed the fact that chapter 3 takes us back to the beginning of the story. It takes us back to the very beginning where God is sending Jonah to Nineveh. And having been saved from death and the fish, Jonah gets another chance. Jonah gets another chance. He hears from God again. Jonah has run from the Lord, but God will not let Jonah go. He follows him even to the bottom of the sea in the belly of a fish, and Jonah can't get away from God. God's not done with Jonah. He's at work in Jonah's life to discipline him, And bring him back to faithfulness. But he's also at work to bring him back to uh, what I'll call public usefulness. Just for the sake of of explaining it. He's he's working not just to discipline Jonah back to himself. But to use Jonah for for the purposes that God had asked him to be obedient to to begin with. Jonah has failed badly. But God is restoring him. And sending him back to the very same place he asked him to go to begin with, God continues to shower Jonah with mercy, right? And overall, that's the story of Scripture. The story of Scripture is God's continual offer of undeserved redemption, and God continues to offer that to Jonah. If you know the rest of the story, if you know what happens in Jonah 4 that we'll get to next week, you'll know that there are good reasons to doubt that Jonah has really changed that much at all. He's not really repentant here in chapter 3. In chapter 4, he becomes very whiny about what God is doing. 
But in chapter 3, I don't think our concern or the concern of the writer of Jonah is, is Jonah's heart at this point. I think the concern might be that he wants our attention to rest not so much, like I said, on Jonah's heart, but instead to focus on the character of the God who relents. The character of the God who shows mercy. The character of the God who continues to offer grace. The God who gives second chances. Right? God loves to save his people. He loves to save his people. He loves to see people reconciled to himself. He wants his creation. He wants the people that he's created to be reconciled to him. And even when his people don't get it, even when his people don't obey as they should, he continues to shower on them his grace because our God is a God who prefers grace to judgment, even though judgment is fully within his right. And we see that in the way that God offers a second chance to the people of Nineveh. He proclaims their destruction, and yet as a result of their repentance, that destruction doesn't Happen As Jonah calls out what God told him to say, the people of Nineveh and the king of Nineveh begin to respond at least in some way. And verse 10 tells us that God relented of the disaster that he intended. And that's part of the irony of Jonah, I think, is that the prophet Jonah himself is an object lesson designed to teach him and the people for whom this book was written, that God loves to show mercy. God loves to show mercy. If he shows grace to Jonah, will he not also extend grace to the city that he has called Jonah to go to and proclaim what he says to proclaim? If he shows grace to Jonah, will he not also show grace and compassion to Nineveh? The Lord deals with Nineveh the very same way that he deals with Jonah. He doesn't have double standards here. One just for Jonah and another one for everyone else. He doesn't have double standards here. One just for us and another for everyone else. He does not deal with you and I as though we're a unique case. Neither so bad that he cannot shower his grace upon us. Or so good that he will not discipline us. He deals with us the very same way he deals with Jonah, the very same way he deals with Nineveh. He offers grace and mercy. The grace that Jonah got, the grace that Nineveh got, that's the grace that God offers for us too. And the same grace that God intends for you, he intends for others. It's a precious truth that should arm us as God's people to fight against exclusivity and insularity, and the pride that so eagerly lurks within our own heart that somehow we're better for some reason or another. Grace is the great leveling field. We all need it. None of us deserve it. And yet God offers it. If we move on in the text, we'll see that God does not hesitate to offer compassion even within the context of rebuke and judgment. Have you ever been on the bad side of rebuke and judgment? For me, if I'm honest, I never feel more rebuked and judged than when I have to go see my doctor. Like, um, 
my doctor is this, uh, is this really scary lady. And what, what makes her scary is I feel like she can see into my soul. And it bothers me greatly, right? She's incredibly capable and smart and professional. But she's scary because she's going to tell me everything bad about me. Everything wrong that I need to change. And I know that I'm going to have to look her in the face and she's going to be right. She's a great doctor and she's concerned about her patients. But when I go in, she's going to tell me, you need to lose weight. Your cholesterol is out of whack. Your blood sugar is borderline. Your blood pressure is too high. And I just feel so judged and rebuked. (laughs) Right? But her purpose in telling me those things are not to hurt me. Her purposes are to move me in the right direction. They're not to rebuke me. Her purposes are redemptive, to move me in the direction that I need to go towards health. She's not just offering judgment by pointing out these things. She's being compassionate enough to point me in the right direction to better health. Her purposes are redemptive. God's purposes are the same. He wants to move the people of Nineveh to him not just destroy them. It's pretty clear in other parts of Scripture that God specifically says, I don't desire the death of anyone. So in verse 5, as they listened to Jonah's message, the people of Nineveh believed God. Jonah spoke, but the people of Nineveh believed God. I want you to feel the force of that. Jonah was preaching, but God was speaking to the people of Nineveh. Jonah was preaching, but God was dealing with their hearts, rebuking their sin. And God was moving the people of Nineveh and the king to some point of repentance based on the fact that he just might show compassion. In verse 4, Jonah says, 40 days, and then destruction. It's pretty straightforward to us. And it seemed, I think the way that they interpreted what Jonah was saying seems pretty straightforward as well. That's how the Ninevites interpreted what Jonah was saying. Destruction is imminent. 40 days, it's all over. But this word overthrown that's used in verse 4 is somewhat of a double entendre. It has two meanings. It can mean destruction, like the Ninevites were interpreting it, and probably like what Jonah wanted to have happen. But it can also mean something else. It can mean an inversion, a reversal, a turning upside down, or an about face. So in verse 4, the bad news is present because unrepentant hearts will face the wrath and curse of God. But maybe there's some good news here as well. Because if there's a a change of heart, if there's a turn of heart, if there's a turn toward God, then a great reversal will occur. The city will either be destroyed or the city will be turned around. And it all depends on how the Ninevites respond. And on some level, the city of Nineveh repents. The word turn is used all throughout chapter 3 when talking about Nineveh, over and over and over and over. Many scholars tend to think that what that means is that the Ninevites' repentance was a mass conversion to the God of Israel, to to, to God. 
I'm not so sure that that's what it was. It seems to me that there is a great amount of repentance in Nineveh, but I think maybe it's partial. Right? For one, there's no mention at all of the covenant name of God like Jonah used in chapter 2. There's no statement that they're putting away their idols. There's nothing about them being circumcised or participating in any other covenant activities that we normally see in the Old Testament for God's people. For another, just a couple of books later in the Old Testament, the prophet Nahum is preaching God's judgment and wrath and destruction on the Assyrian nation again because of their evil and their sin. But what the text does say, and if you look at what the king says at the end of chapter 3, let me just read it. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. I think what we see somewhat in chapter 3 is that the Ninevites are turning from some evil ways. They're turning from violence. They're turning, in a sense, from the injustice that they are doing to one another. What the text says is that the king calls them to stop doing violence to one another, to stop exploiting, abusing, and killing one another. And throughout the Old Testament, whenever you see God calling to Gentile nations about repentance... It's that they stop their injustice. It's that they stop their violence. It's that they stop their evil actions towards one another. And I think part of that is that the people of God will not be defined by injustice and violence. But I think also we should be clear here that God is concerned about injustice and violence and the abuse of his creation, his created people. God is concerned that those things end. Ultimately, we'll see the fulfillment of that one day when Jesus comes again. But we see that God is concerned about it here. So much so that when Nineveh repents of the violence that they have toward one another, God responds with compassion and grace and relents of his imminent judgment. Right? Perhaps there's a lesson for us here. Even as we get ready to celebrate the life of Martin Luther King Jr. tomorrow, who was murdered for fighting injustice, maybe we need to examine ourselves and see where we are party to injustice and see where God is calling us to repent of that injustice, be it in our attitudes, be it in our thoughts, be it in the way that we interact on social media or the things we watch or the things that we take into our minds, maybe there's a place for us to repent of injustice. Jonah preached judgment. Nineveh in some way begins to turn towards God, even if it's only partially, but they turn toward God. They they turn away from their violence. They turn away from the harm that they're doing to one another, at least now, in this moment they do. And God extends compassion to them in the midst of his imminent judgment. That's the kind of God we serve. A God who willingly offers compassion when there's a turn towards Him. Right, and knowing all this about God, 
we would be remiss to not point out that this is ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. There's a straight line from the book of Jonah to Jesus. Matthew 12, Jesus is being asked for a miraculous sign to prove he is who he says he is. And I'll just read it for you. Matthew chapter 12. And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. It's pretty powerful. The skeptics wanted Jesus to prove who he was, to prove that maybe he was a wise teacher, maybe that he was somebody important. They, they wanted to see signs. They wanted him to do some magic tricks. But Jesus isn't just one more teacher come to tell you how to save yourself and to find God. Rather, he is God himself come to find you and save you. Right? Jesus isn't just another teacher to point you in a direction. He's here to save you and to find you because he's the Savior. He's the ultimate fulfillment of this salvation that we hear about in the book of Jonah. He's the ultimate gift that comes from repenting and turning to God. And even Jesus says here that the men of Nineveh will stand up and testify against you because they repented. The miraculous sign of Jonah isn't so much a display of power like they wanted Jesus to do something, a display of power through whatever uh, miraculous signs he could do. The miraculous sign of Jonah is a display of weakness. It's Jesus laying aside his divine glory and prerogatives and humbling himself even to the point of death on a cross. Just as Jonah was cast into the water to save the sailors from the wrath of God, even if Jonah had other intentions in that, so Jesus would be cast into death to bear all the punishment that our sins, that we deserve because of our sins, to save us. And just as Jonah came back from the belly of the fish, from Sheol, as Jonah would say in chapter 2, Jesus was raised for our justification. That's the sign of Jonah. Jesus' death and resurrection, his sacrifice and victory, that's the sign of Jonah. Since about 200 A.D., it has been common practice for Jewish congregations to read the book of Jonah during the afternoon of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. It's laid out in the Old Testament. It's the highest holy days of the Jewish calendar. And there are... The way that Yom Kippur was celebrated in the Old Testament and the way that God has laid, out, laid it out no longer happens. And so in its place, some other things happen on the day of Yom Kippur. And in the afternoon, the book of Jonah is read to the congregation... 
so that the hearers would be reminded that God calls for repentance and then like for the Ninevites, repentance and forgiveness is necessary. The Old Testament and the sacrifices of the Old Testament and the sacrificial system and the way of worship points us to Jesus. That's what it served to do, to point us to Jesus. And in Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement was laid out like this. It would begin with the priest in the temple sacrificing a bull and sprinkling blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, right, it's a, it's a piece of... Uh, furniture, but it's designed for worship, and it's the place where God would meet with his people. The mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Covenant, that's the place that God was intended to meet with his people. And so the priest would sacrifice a bull and sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant to make sure that they have purified that place. Later on in the day, two goats would be brought to the tabernacle or to the temple later on, and those goats were brought to deal with the sin of the entire nation. One goat was killed and its blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat as well to satisfy God's wrath as a substitute in the place of the people who had sinned. The other goat would be brought to the temple or the tabernacle. The priest would lay hands on it. He would transfer the sins of the people to this goat. And then that goat would be sent out into the wilderness, into the desert to die. Those goats, that sacrificial system that's intended to point to Jesus, offers us a picture of what Jesus actually does. He satisfies the judgment of God, and in compassion, he takes our sins on himself. The fact that God would offer compassion to Nineveh in the midst of his judgment is exactly what God is doing in the person of Jesus. He's satisfying the judgment of God in Jesus and in compassion. Jesus is taking our sins on himself that we might be reconciled to God through the work of Christ. God is all about reconciliation. We see it in the book of Jonah. We see it in what Jesus does for us. The ultimate fulfillment of the reconciliation that God is after is found in Jesus. There's a direct line from Jonah to Jesus. God is concerned about reconciliation. God is concerned that we be rightly related to him, and he's made that happen through Christ. He's made that happen through Christ. And so as we get ready to walk away from this place this morning, I beg of you, that the reconciliation that God offers us through the person and work of Jesus be on your mind. That our minds and hearts be consumed with what Christ has done for us and the way that he's made a way for us to meet with God in a new way. Let's be consumed by the fact that God is out for our reconciliation to him. And as we close, let me just say this. If God is a God of reconciliation, what does that mean about his people? If God is a God of reconciliation, how should that define us, his people? Does it have something to say about who we are and what we're to be about? If the heart of God is about reconciling to people, what should our heart be about? For many in the modern Christian church in the West, it seems like there are two camps. 
One camp says, all we need to do is preach the gospel and not worry about anything else. And if we're going to do something good for people, if we're going to, to, to go out and serve people, if we're going to concern ourselves with some type of social justice, we're going to do it to put a hook in people's mouth to bring them to us. There seems to be another camp that says God should, should, that, that being a Christian should lead us to be concerned primarily about social justice, about ending injustice in the world, about serving and working on behalf of other people. And if we get a chance to preach the gospel, if we get a chance to say something about what Christ has done for us, well, we'll eventually get there. But you rarely see both. People who are concerned that God's word be proclaimed, that Jesus be held up as the way for us to be rightly reconciled to God, and people who are concerned about seeing injustice end because God is concerned about being, seeing injustice end. Not just participating in seeing injustice end so that we put a hook in people's mouth to draw them to us. Look, where injustice reigns, God is not being worshipped. Where injustice reigns, God is not being worshipped. And so for us, as believers, what we take away about who God is, what God has done for Jonah, what God has done for the city of Nineveh, what God has done through Jesus to ultimately fulfill what he points to in the book of Jonah, let's take away that God is concerned that we proclaim the truth of what Jesus has done. But let's also recognize that where injustice reigns, God is not being worshipped. And there's a place to end injustice and proclaim the gospel and to do those things in conjunction solely for the purpose of seeing God worshipped and solely for the purpose of seeing God's purposes extend throughout the earth. God is concerned about reconciliation. Let's be thankful for Jesus and what he's done for us. But let's, reconcile, let's, let's, let's consider and let's recognize that because God is concerned about reconciliation, we are too. That is to define us as well as God's people. We're going to move into a time of response. We do this every Sunday at Redemption. And the, and the reason we do this is it gives us an opportunity to respond in worship to what God has spoken to our hearts and minds. The band's going to come back up. Second, lead us in some songs. Give us an opportunity to worship through singing. Uh, while that's happening, we have an opportunity to sit where we are, to stand, reflect, pray, deal with God if we need to do that, reconcile with someone else if we need to do that. That opportunity exists now. We have an opportunity to give. Um, there's a giving basket in the back where you can put your tithes or offerings. We recognize that not everybody has checks or